Let's look to the word of the Lord in John chapter number 6. Stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. John chapter number 6, verse number 4. It says, Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, test Philip. For he himself, Jesus, knew what he would do. And just, here's a clue, he always does. (laughs) Father, thank you for revelation. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Reveal the awesome power of Jesus to us today. In fact, reveal Jesus, period, to us. Holy Spirit, we need to see him, and we need to have him revealed to us. So we thank you in advance, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. There's another teachable moment between Jesus and his followers. I'm so grateful the Holy Spirit lets us take a peek into how that dynamic was at work between Jesus and his disciples. And notice their mentality. Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little, a little. So their thinking was the greatest thing we can ever do for these needy people, provide each of them with a little bit and help them just to kind of get by. But there was a young boy there on the scene who had five loaves of bread and two fish and watch. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number five, about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise, the fish as much as they wanted. Wow. So when they were filled, He said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing be lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Wow. I love this story. And I love the way Jesus thinks about us. If you desire to know what God thinks about your life and circumstance, look at Jesus. What did he do? There was this great need. There were 5,000 men, plus wives and children, all hungry, and they needed food. Jesus didn't just meet their need. The mentality of his disciples, if we take all of our money and pull it together, we'll have enough money to go buy some bread to give each person just a little. That's how we think. It's the way we limit God and limit ourselves because we limit God. We make God like us. No. Jesus, God's son, does not think that way. He blessed the bread and the fish and multiplied it and fed them until they were filled. He didn't dish out just enough for them to get by. He fed them until they were filled. Have you ever eaten until you were filled? Thanksgiving, Christmas, maybe yesterday at barbecue. Yeah, it was a meal where you were filled. I can't take any more. I'm filled up. Then Jesus said, go gather the leftovers because I didn't just meet the need by filling every stomach of the thousands of people, but now there are 12 baskets left over. We serve the God who exceeds the need. Okay, so let me build a little faith with you here today. Our God is not a get-by God. Your God is the God who exceeds the need. And after Jesus had fed the 5,000, I love the words, when they were full, our God is greater than your need. 
God doesn't want you unsatisfied. He wants you full and satisfied. They gathered the remaining and the leftovers filled 12 baskets. Another occasion, Jesus is on the seashore. His disciples had fished all night. This was their business. It was their enterprise. They were professionals. And they caught nothing that night for their business. That night, they caught nothing from the seashore. Jesus gives the disciples specific instructions. Hmm. He, Jesus, tells these professional fishermen, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. So Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. Think with me a minute. Jesus is not a fisherman. These are professionals. This is their business. What's he do advising them? Maybe in your business, you might want to take some advice from Jesus because he knows where the fish are. And when they arrived where Jesus is, he had other fish already baked and ready to eat. He's always ahead of the game. And as soon as they come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus didn't just abundantly meet their business need. He exceeded their need. When they arrived at the shore, they've got many fish. They can barely manage them, but he already has other fish prepared for their breakfast. Some might think, well, he could have waited and used some of that fish that they'd caught, and then he could have cooked them breakfast. That's the thinking some would have. The lesson from Jesus, I don't just fill your nets. I exceed your need. I have fish cooking right now. That's how your God thinks. When God created the animal kingdom, he didn't stop with a horse or a cow or birds or specific fish or whales or sparrow or a dove or an eagle. He also created the peacock, a kaleidoscope of colors, because he's that kind of a God. God is greater than your need. He could have stopped creating with the crow. (laughs) Sometimes I think he did around here. But he showed us technicolor. He created earth to bring forth food. From the soil, tomatoes, apples, oranges, lettuce, herbs, watermelon, all that we need. And often some of the fruit rots on the ground because we can't gather the abundance of harvest. Because God is greater than our need. God created you with eyes with a million receptors. He created you with ears that have 24,000 fibers that vibrate to the song of the mockingbird every morning. He created 500 muscles in your body, 200 bones, 700 miles of nerve fiber, a heart that beats 36 million times per year, that pumps 600,000 gallons of blood through your body, through 60,000 miles of arteries and veins. He's given you a three-pound brain that has 15 million nerve cells, 4 million pain sensors, 500,000 touch detectors, 200,000 temperature gauges, and it tells you this, God has exceeded your need. You have five quarts of blood recycling nutrients and oxygen in your body, 22 trillion blood cells, each cell with millions of molecules, each molecule containing an atom, each atom is oscillating, turning 10 million times per second. Each second, 2 million blood cells die. 
and are replaced by two million other blood cells. We're a walking resurrection because whenever God does anything, he does exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or could think of. He's just that kind of a God. He's always greater than the need. The earth is 8,000 miles in diameter. The sun is 864,000 miles in diameter. Our earth is big, but the sun dwarfs the earth. The Hubble telescope has helped us learn there are one million galaxies like our Milky Way that contain hundreds of millions of stars. The nearest star is 26 trillion miles away from Earth. It's so big we can still see it at that distance. Because we serve a God who doesn't just create a planet, puts the human race on it, and then sends his son to die for us. He says, I will create all of these other luminaries because I don't just meet the need. I am greater than your need. We serve the God who's not only able to do what we need him to do, he's able to do much more than we need him to do, exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Somebody ought to be thankful here today for a creator like that. Amen? There's a great illustration of what I'm speaking about in the Old Testament. It's found in the story of Naomi and Ruth. There was a famine in Israel. And a certain family of four, were, they were losing everything. So they left Bethlehem for the land of Moab. And the head of the home leaves with his wife, Naomi, and their two sons. And the husband and the two sons die in Moab. It's a very unfortunate circumstance. The two sons had married, but now they leave widows. So Naomi and Ruth, one of her daughters-in-law, hear that the famine has ended in Bethlehem, and they head back to Bethlehem. So in Bethlehem, they desired to take advantage of the Hebrew law. Moses said in time of famine, reapers of the harvest field had to make a provision. As the reapers went about collecting, anything that fell from their baskets or from their hands, they were to leave that on the ground for the poor to gather. Okay? It was called gleaning. And notice... It wasn't sent to them. They had to come and get it. They had to do some work. It's kind of a good idea, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of the fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. So God gives very specific direction on how to take care of those in need. So in these fields, those in need could find sustenance. Naomi and Ruth had nothing. Naomi had lost the property they had once owned back in Bethlehem. They were widows, both without husbands to support them, leaving them in a very desperate position. So the reapers of the field had to leave what was dropped on the ground. Therefore, the poor were provided for out of the abundance in the field. The corners of the fields were left unharvested, along with the drop foods, so that those that were in need could come and they could work and they could gather that for themselves. So Ruth goes into the field one day to gather the leftovers just as the law provided. She and no doubt many others. And Ruth was a Gentile born in Moab, and she was not a Hebrew. But in the field, she was allowed by God's word to gather. So she's no doubt bending over all day, on her knees at times, 
gathering what she can find for the meal that they had to have that night. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Perhaps by the day's end, in the heat of bending over all day and gathering, maybe she had a bowl full or two of harvest. And there was competition for this leftover food. It wasn't just one person going in there. There was competitiveness. And the word says that the reapers were sure-handed, meaning these working the fields for the landowners were professionals. And understand, this is what they did for a living. This was their career. Today we use machinery for harvesting large fields, but before they had those combines, you used your hands for harvesting. A sure-handed reaper, you were good at what you did. You didn't leave a lot of unharvested food because your employer wanted the most out of the harvest as was possible. So you weren't clumsy. You were a sure-handed reaper. They were skilled. Their employment depended on their ability not to be sloppy out in the harvest field. They were thorough. Imagine the professional reapers knowing they would be rebuked if they dropped too much of the harvest onto the ground. The same day Ruth has been toiling in the fields gathering what she might. The landowner happens to ride out to inspect how the harvest is going. And he sees this beautiful girl gathering, gleaning, trying to make ends meet, little pieces she's gathering here and there where she can find them. And when Boaz, the landowner, saw Ruth, he said something to the reapers that was ridiculous in their minds according to their skill sets. He said, Let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her and leave them that she may glean them and rebuke her not. Let me translate. Get butterfingers. Be sloppy. Drop the barley that you harvest. Don't be so neat. Drop handfuls on purpose. And Boaz said, don't mess with her. Don't tell her what you're doing. I don't want her embarrassed or humiliated. I want her to pick up handfuls on purpose. You just act like it's an accident. Fake it. Well, I can see this. The law said, you can have a little bit, but here comes grace. And when it sees a Gentile in the, in the Hebrew field, it says, I'm not just going to save you. I'm not just going to give you life. I'm not just going to give you what you might need right now to get by, but I'm going to make sure you've got more than enough. And then this scene is crazy. The reapers are dropping more than she can manage. She's overloaded. And she's thinking, these are the sloppiest reapers I've ever seen. Look at all this. I mean, she begins to fulfill bushels of food. Drop extra for no reason. And the law said all she had coming to her was what was dropped by accident. And understand, we've got a heavenly Boaz who under the new covenant didn't just provide for us. The law says you can only get this much. Enough to get by through the shed blood of an animal. It won't remove your sin, but it will roll your sin over until the day of atonement. Again the next year, until the day of atonement, and on and on. But it never took sin away, it just rolled it over. But here comes our heavenly Boaz, Jesus. And he says, I'm going to bleed out for you. So Calvary Christian Center, we are not under the covenant of Moses. We are under a new and better covenant He's also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. The old covenant met our needs. 
The new covenant exceeds our needs. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The old covenant was enough to roll over their sins. But we don't just get our sins forgiven. He is greater than our needs. He said, I will purge your conscience. I will make sure that you don't walk around under condemnation and guilt over your past. And not only will I do that, I will bless your coming in, and I will bless your going out, and I will bless you in the city, and I will bless you in the field. Oh, and by my stripes you are healed. And by the way, I'm going to make a covenant with your family that if you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved and your house. And that blessing is yours for generations to come. It's not just enough. We are not just saved. Jesus provided more than enough. And understand, we have a better covenant. We serve a God who's greater than our needs. Under Moses' covenant, when you came to God's house, you had to bring a sacrifice. If you were wealthy, you'd bring an ox. If you were middle income, you would bring a lamb. If you were poor, you still had to bring an offering. You would bring a dove. It was not equal giving. It was equal sacrifice. That's why the tithe is so powerful. If you made $100,000 this month, you brought God $10,000. If you made $1,000 this month, you brought him $100. If you made $100 this month, you bring him $10. And God said, if they honor me with what they've been given, I will treat them exactly the same, fairly. It's not equal giving, it's equal sacrifice. So they would come to the house of God, they would bring their animal sacrifices to the priest and those sacrifices would be slain and offered to God. The worshiper would come with their hands full. Then they would leave with their hands empty. They never got to take any of that sacrifice home with them. You came with something, and you left with nothing. If you're going to receive a blessing under the old covenant, you better get it while you're in the house of God, because when you're leaving, you're leaving empty-handed. But here comes David. And David has returned the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. The Philistines had stolen it from them. And God is now restoring his people. And they get the privilege of getting the Ark of the Covenant back. And he brings it back to Mount Zion. And he sets up the tent of meeting on Mount Zion with the Ark of the Covenant. And there's a great celebration. And David said, roll up the curtains. We're going to have a different kind of worship than you're used to. The people will bring the exact same sacrifices, and they did. They brought the oxen, they brought the lambs, they brought the doves. And David said, bring your offerings and gather your families together. Whosoever will, come, let them gather around the Ark of the Covenant and offer sacrifices of worship to the Lord. Bring an offering, come before him, or worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. But David did something different. Something they'd never seen before. David said, before you leave, take something home with you. First Chronicles 16 records it. To everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. For generations people came to the house of God with their hands full, but left empty-handed. 
If you were to be blessed, you had to be blessed in God's house, but you couldn't take it back home. But we serve the God who's greater than your need. David got a revelation when he said, don't just receive blessing in the house of the Lord, take it home. He said, take the loaf of bread. That represents the word of God. Take a piece of meat. That represents the Savior, the one who died to set you free. Take a cake of raisins. Raisins are dried grapes. It represents the spirit of joy. And he said, you don't just enjoy this in God's house. You serve a God who's greater than your need. In Moses' tabernacle, you left a sacrifice. In David's tabernacle, you take something back with you after you have worshipped. Prophecy in Acts 15 speaks of it. And will rebuild the tabernacle of David. Not Moses, of David. Because you get to take something back. And God promises, I will give something to you that you can take back home with you. It will exceed your need. We don't just come to church. We have church, and then it's over. That's not the prescription God has for us. Jesus wants you to leave here with more of him than ever. To take him back into your life and into your workplace tomorrow. Calvary Christian Center, we have to quit being religious. Sunday Christians, if we continue doing that pattern, we're going to lose everything God gave us in this country. We have to quit playing church. We're supposed to leave here not empty-handed, going right back into life as we want to live it. We're to leave here saying, I have the blood I have the name of Jesus, I have his word, I have what I need, I am an overcomer. My God is greater than my need. So, I love the story of Naaman. His servant girl was an enslaved Israeli captive because Syria was beating up on Israel pretty badly. Why would God permit that? Because Israel was disobedient and they lost a lot of their freedoms. This was a mighty Syrian general who had won many battles against Israel. One day, a little enslaved Israeli girl, servant, saw that he was a sick man with a terminal disease, leprosy. And the servant girl said, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. In desperation, General Naaman heads for Samaria. And history tells us the journey that the general had to travel distance-wise was about 120 miles from his home. Think about that. When he arrives there, he thinks the prophet's going to make a big deal out of this and come out and speak with him. After all, he's a general. He's a wealthy, prosperous man, but he was a leper. And Naaman did not welcome or was not welcomed by the prophet. The prophet ignored him. And this wealthy, powerful general, Naaman, arrives at the house of the prophet. And he's got gifts. He's brought expensive items with him to give the prophet as a token of appreciation. But the prophet would not speak with him and did not acknowledge him. In fact, he told his servant, the prophet told his servant, you go tell General Naaman what to do. And this is the word from the Lord you pass along to him. You tell him to go to the Jordan River. That's another 30 miles from where they were. <laughs> and he, Elisha sent a messenger to the general saying, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious 
And he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. He at least would come out and say hello to me. Instead, he sent to go dunk himself seven times in the dirty Jordan River. And Naaman was angry. He was ticked off. He was upset. Are not the Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Then one of his traveling companions, Naaman's companion, said, why not just do what the prophet asked? I mean, if he asked you to do something hard, you probably would have done it. Just do what he asked. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he came up the seventh time, he was not just healed. The word says his skin was like the skin of a newborn. He didn't just get his health back. He got a life lift. No more wrinkles. Where's water to dip in like that? I'm going to head there. The skin of a newborn. Because God didn't just meet your need. He's greater than your need. He was the best looking general in all of Syria. No surgery. God gave it to him in the water. He was not just cleansed of his leprosy. He exceeded the need and gave him brand new skin. We serve the God who's greater than your need. So Naaman now loved the Jordan River. Let me show you. The river he hated, the river he mocked, the river he detested. When he comes up the seventh time, I'll bet they had a hard time getting him out of the water. He was probably crying tears, laughing, splashing, thanking God because leprosy was keeping him from his wife and his children and his associates. He was to be isolated, but now he's free again. He's got his life back. He can socialize again. He's splashing in the Jordan, and then he gets this great idea, a God idea. His companions are saying, come on, we've got to go, we've got to go. And Naaman says, yeah, I have to go back to Syria. But there they worship the idol Rimon. But you know, I love what God, this God has done for me so much. Help me here. And Naaman dug mud from the Jordan River bottom. And he packed enough to fill the backpacks of two of his mules full of the mud of the River Jordan to take back to Syria. See, God doesn't just heal your body and meet your need to have church only in the river. He wants you to go home with something. He wants you to take something with you. Two mule loads of earth for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. So he packs down two mule loads of Jordan River mud, and he goes home and and into that heathen temple. There he worships the God of gods. He took in that holy mud from the Jordan River He throws it on the floor of the temple of another god, and he knelt in that mud and worshiped the one true God. I will worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They can worship all the gods they want, but where I'm kneeling is holy ground because he didn't just meet my needs. He's greater than my needs, and I took it home with me. And God says in this story, take some home with you. It matters to me where you work. Whatever hostile environment you're in, if the only one living for God is you on that campus, if, if no one else serves God in your family, God said, I've got so much grace, 
if I can get one person serving me, I can make the place holy ground. And my ground will take over the devil's ground. He's greater than your need. In 2 Kings 4, when the widow was told to borrow vessels and start pouring the little oil she had, the oil didn't run out. She filled every vessel she had. Then God said, sell the oil you have and pay your debt. Say, pay your debt. Pay your debt. debt. God can remove debt from our lives. Pay your debt. And he didn't stop there. The sons were being enslaved to pay off the debt that she was left with. The next generation was about to be taken away from her. And God said, pay your debt and live on the rest. In other words, you'll be able to pay the bill you owe so your boys get to live with you at home and you get to live on the rest. You'll be taken care of. And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt. You and your sons live on the rest. Enjoy the rest of your life because I will exceed your need. I know you've got a need, but I'm a God who's greater than your need. And if I'm going to do it, I will do it pressed down, shaken together, running over. Shall men give into your lap? Live on the rest. I've come that you might have life, Jesus said. And that would have been enough. (laughs) But life more abundantly. Say abundantly. abundantly. Abundant life. He didn't just save you from your sin. He saved you from hell. He saved you from judgment. We will never stand before God to be judged for our past sins, now under the blood of Jesus. He has exceeded your need. He is greater than your need. He's the advocate. He's the almighty. He's the ancient of days. He's the beginning and the end. He's the begotten. He's the beloved of God. He's the chief shepherd. He's the counselor. He is the consolation of Israel. He's the day spring. He is the day star. He is the desire of all nations. He is the elect. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He is the eternal one. He is the firstborn. He is the first fruit. He is the friend of sinners. He is God with us. He is the great teacher. He's the great high priest. He's the head of the church. He's the heir of all things. He is the hope of glory. He is the I am. He is judge of the living and the dead. He is king of kings. He is the light and he is the life. He is the living stone. He is the mediator. He is the man of sorrows. He's the good thing coming out of Nazareth. He is the overcoming lamb. He is the omnipotent God. He is the Passover. He is the peace. He is the prince of God. He is the rabbi. He is the redeemer. He is our ransom. He is the star of Jacob. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. He is the true vine. He is the tree of life. He is the unspeakable gift of God. He is our victor. He is the voice of God. He is the very Christ. He is the way. He is the word. He is the wonderful savior. He is Adam's creator. He is Eve's promised seed. He is Noah's ark. 
He is Abraham's sacrifice. He is Isaac's substitute. He is Jacob's wrestler. He is Moses' staff. He is Aaron's rod that budded. He is Samson's strength. He is David's sling. He is Deborah's song. He is Solomon's wisdom. He's Elijah's mantle. He's Elisha's double portion. He's Isaiah's righteous servant. He is Jeremiah's branch. He's Ezekiel's man of fire. He's Daniel's ancient of days. He is Hosea's faithful husband. He is Job's restorer. He is Malachi's day star. He is Matthew's Messiah. Mark's miracle worker. He is Luke's son of man. He is John's son of God. He is Peter's rock and the keys to the kingdom. He is Paul's potter over the clay. In Revelation, he's the one who was dead and is alive and was king over death and hell. He is above everything, so you can't get higher. He's beneath everything, so you can't put him down. He's inside everything, so you can't lock him out. He's outside everything, so you can't put him out. He's Jehovah Shammah, our fellowship. He's Jehovah Shalom, our peace. He is Jehovah Nissi, our conqueror. He is Jehovah Sidkenu, our righteousness. He is Jehovah Rapha, our healer. He is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. You've got something to take home with you today. Take that home with you today. That's who your God is. And he wants you to understand he exceeds your every need. He's greater than your need. Thank you, Lord. Come on, saints. Give him your best praise. 